need some motivation on your Chinese business endeavor, may be curious about what the Chinese business environment is all about, or want to laugh out loud listening to war stories on the ground in China, then this is your show, China Business Cast. Welcome to the new episode of China Business Cast. It's me, Lina Bardusevichuta, the Lithuanian co-host with you today. And I will be talking to a business professor from Netherlands, Dr. Peter Pedarelli. Peter first arrived to China in 1975 to study Chinese and has worked as a business consultant ever since. Later, he started researching business, got two PhDs, and is now teaching business students. I got to know about him because he wrote two amazing books, and we will be talking about them today. I got to interview Peter while he was enjoying his 14-day hotel quarantine after arriving to China. So please forgive us for the quality of the sound today. We promise that the quality of content is top-notch and it will be worth your time. At the end of the episode, we will have a little contest for our listeners and the winner will get one of Peter's amazing books, signed by the author himself and delivered to your door. Stay tuned. And I hope you enjoy. Thank you very much for agreeing for the interview. As I explained to you before, as I know you because of your books about uh, Chinese entrepreneurship and Chinese corporate identity. So for me, you're firstly an author because you really have helped me to find the words in English and to find the concepts in English, how to talk to the Westerners from their perspective about China, about Chinese business practices, about my reality of living here and doing business in China. But then I did some research and I found that you're also an assistant professor, a business consultant, a blogger, and now I saw a new title, the web developer. Well, I'm the webmaster of, of a website <laughs> of a research center. I built the website and I, I maintain it. And yeah, I like to, uh, you know, a person needs to change himself or herself in every number of years to you know, to keep fit mentally. So how do you introduce yourself now? Uh, that's a good question. Well, with my name, what you see is what you get, of course. That's the first thing. And yes, then I'm, it's still China. Of course, Sinologist is important. Every, so the common element of all these different jobs, descriptions, is focus on China. And then it's China as emerging markets as well. So I teach about emerging markets, not only China. So you have actually started studying when you were 14, right? The Chinese language? Yeah, well, it was an evening course. So I was in, in, in high school and there was an evening course near. Uh, and I was always interested in learning languages. And, you know, we are a small country. And so then after the initial study, you pursued um, doctorate degrees in two different directions. One was in linguistics and you were awarded a doctor's degree for modern Chinese grammar studies. And then you pursued one more doctorate degree in business administration, where you researched social cognitive approach to sign of Western cooperation, right? That's right. But there is 14 years in between, huh? As you said, I, never too late to study or to change. No, it's, uh, you have to know it's continuous studying. You know, when I, you know, I was always one year in China as a student in 75. Mm. And then after my graduation in 79, I had a three-year scholarship for to repeat this PhD. And uh, within that period, I spent uh, half a year in China for research. Mm-hmm. And uh, 1982-84, I taught Dutch in Peking University. Wow. Yeah. 
Were there people so, interested in studying Dutch at that time? Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. uh, it was an official supported by the Dutch Ministry of Education. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For me, it was a, another occasion to be in China. But then I had three periods, longer periods of China, one year, half a year, and two years in China. And uh, within that period, I had contacts with uh, business people in, in embassy parties. You know, you, mm. you meet them, you talk to them, and I soon found out that what they were doing is much more interesting than studying. <laughs> I simply, yeah. and of course, and, and then I built up a network, a social mm. network, among, uh, people of uh, representatives of companies. And uh, I got a, a note, uh, there were no emails, a real letter, a paper letter from a company. Wow. Said we, heard, yeah. we are interested in China and we heard your name from, you know, someone, someone, and uh, if you're interested, why don't you make an appointment? And they made an appointment. And three months later, I was hired by the company, you know, without wow. any business, business studies background or anything. It's uh, very similar to my story because I came yeah. in 2009 and I was one of the first Lithuanians who could speak Chinese. So then suddenly all the business people needed me, the politicians, and yeah. I was once translating for the president. And, I, you know, wow. I'm not uh, saying that my Chinese is amazing. It's actually okay. But uh, it's just uh, there was nobody else to fill those shoes. Yeah. And then suddenly yeah. I had a choice. Whether I want to help or whether I want to allow somebody Chinese to do the interpretation who don't know my culture, who don't know what the context is. And well, suddenly I just uh, realized I could. And maybe that is a little bit of your story. You thought it's interesting. And then even though you don't have the training for it, the people trained you on the job, no? Yes, they can. They can do that. So that's an, and it's an interesting experience for my business. My students are business students, so I always tell them. Hey, well, I, my first job was in a company. Uh, was even I was hired without any business degree whatsoever. Mm. Then I think your approach to researching business is also coming from that personal experience, right? Of um, right because I'm invited. not some of the models. Yeah, right. the models that I'm using are not actually business models, but it's right. social psychology, right. uh, sociology philosophy of course postmodern philosophy we put it all together and so my second question that i prepared is that uh, you say that you're always combining the best of two worlds the chinese world the western yes. world the linguistics and the business the academic and the actual business practice so how does it feel and uh, we briefly discussed the challenges and the interest of the clashing interests of the academia and the business, but maybe you have some other personal experiences, recent or past experiences where you thought that, wow, this is really worth it, or maybe, wow, this is really too much. <laughs> yeah, it's always too much. Well, when, whenever you start a new, as a consultant, you get a new assignment and it's really new with a new company, new type of business. I often have the feeling that it's, wow, this is so new. Will I be able to live up to the promises that I make when I actually serve? And it's, I'm always surprised that when you try to eradicate that anxiety, the level of, you keep the level of anxiety uh, low enough and you simply start doing it rationally and not always rationally, sometimes irrationally. Uh, that's the, because business is not always rational. Uh, that's a mistake people made a few decades ago. I always find out that at the end, everything falls together. And of course, that's partly the China, that is the Chinese influence on my thinking. As long as you do things in a certain way and you go about and you ask here and there, suddenly there is this moment that everything comes down to the holistic approach.
So the way I speak about it is I say to my clients that when you come to China, you will immediately understand that there is no one right way. And there will be many truths and all of these truths and all of these approaches will have to be integrated. And I share your sentiment and thank you very much for being open about it because I thought it's only my thing, but now I feel much less anxious because every time I get a new project, I will think, wow, this one I really cannot do. Okay, this will be the end of my career, you know. And then I start doing it and then I realize, no, it's not and I can do it too. So, <laughs> it's a matter of education. That's why I'm, uh, I'm very comfortable with being a university teacher, a professor, and at the same time also a consultant because it's a kind of teaching process. You can, people hire you for whatever, whatever assignment they hire you because they believe that you know things that they do not know which are useful. So that should be a source of confidence. Do you think uh, that you know things? I think that I only know the questions. Because many I know, I know, I have procedures. That's what I've learned from the Rotterdam, uh, my Rotterdam mm -hmm. PPC supervisor. It's having procedures is more important than knowledge. Right. Because knowledge is, is a construct as well. Right. The reality is a construct. But to have the procedures with which you try to find reality constructs. So I uh, usually, with when I start any assignment, the first thing is, of course, to analyze the clients. Uh, state of mind why do they give me the exam why do they have why, why do they formulate an assignment like this what are their objectives but also what are the drivers what kind of people are behind it individual people how do they understand how do they make sense of the problem and if i see issues there that may impede them from reaching their goal i also try to work on them on their perception so for instance if it's a market my, my latest thing was late end of last year some some for a british company some market study so market study seems sounds like you know effects and figures but i also worked on the british side on the way that they perceive the chinese market for that particular product and work on it and and, and, and you know, adjust it in a way and not opportunistic so that i can that they can accept the lesser results that I give them or that I've given different types of reports than they would want to, but to educate them and to make them realize that what I'm going to give them is, gives much more insight than the facts and figure type of report that they want. So it's on one hand, you work simply work on the assignment in the classical way. You know, it's market study, it's a market study, and you need to give them something that looks like what they want. But the package... What makes the facts and figures whole, what makes the facts and figures lie living things that you can use, that's something that is mean that, that requires working on the minds of your clients. And that's something that not all people know that start consulting, uh, young academics that start consulting practices do not know this. And even if you know this, they may be reluctant to do so because they're afraid for the clients and the clients think that they are trying to cheat them. You know, you want this, but you cannot have this because this information doesn't exist. No, you don't need to know this because this information is not important and they think, no, you are not able to give it. No, I showed them. So I showed them everything. I show my clients. I give open insight in how I think, what, who I have approached these people, this, this source of information. And I process this information this particular way. I come to a certain conclusion, 
temporary and conclusions. And then I go back to you. What do you think about this? So, and it's also so it's a conversation with the client. That's what I learned from, uh, and that's actually also what Chinese, as you know, Chinese do all the time. Huh? Concept in computation. You are a boss in China, a, CEO, a boss, and you have a secretary or, or an assistant or an aide, and you ask this, and please find, make a report on this, have a look in this and this topic, and send me a report in a week. This assistant or secretary or whatever it is will come to you several times and ask with intermediate reports and with papers and with some figures. Do you is this what you want? Is it what you want? And at the end of the day, if you don't take care, you're the one who have actually written your own report because they want to know what you want them to say. So it's it's like a socket and a plug that have to fit. I think it is probably very rare that the people who are in business have worked on their own mind in this way because yes. you understand personally the shift that you had to go through in order yes. to be able to feel comfortable in this new environment culturally, psychologically, even physically, yes. you know, the food and stuff. And um, I think it's only because you have that experience yourself and you managed your mind, you can share this with the other people. Yes. And so the question that's coming from this is how in the recent or maybe prior market studies, have you been able to help them flip? Maybe you have a particular example where you picked a very specific illustration about the market and then the client suddenly realized, oh my God, yeah, definitely it's not going to work what I had in mind at all. And then they start listening to you. Yeah, well, it's the oldest client. The client that I had longest was about 15 years it, uh, also a British company, Dutch and British for some reason, in spite of the Brexit and everything, they're very good. You can, I can, there is a whole list of Dutch British joint ventures or joint companies that are doing very well. So it, is, so it, it works very well. It's a, and so they want to expand their market all the time. And I told them it's the, the, the best for them, for that business, which they needed some semi, a number of semi-government organizations. It's simply as long as these organizations keep uh, sense-making. So as long as a number of people in relevant organizations, so a number of managers, leaders in this small number of semi-governmental organizations keep make sense of your organization as positive, your business is guaranteed. What I did in, in about this is, is in, at that time is making sure that this relationship was always good and actually based on my own personal relationship with these people. So it is really going. So every time you go to China for whatever reason, you never go, I, I never went to China for one particular customer or one particular issue. It's always combining, as you know, from because I chose to be, as a consultant, I chose to be stationed in, in Europe, closer to the customers. That is more important. That's also more important to be near the customers than to be near the market because, you know, you, the market is, is, is close enough anyway. So it was actually very easy to maybe remain the consultant for that company for about 15 years, where I saw three CEOs Client side is growing, changing, and a few other uh, division heads. I was working for one particular division uh, very comfortably. So do I understand correctly that before coming to China, they didn't understand the value and the importance of being friendly with the semi-governmental organizations? And then your main task in the 15 years was to ensure that they present themselves correctly to those organizations yes. and keep the relationships yeah. so that they're yes. continuously supported. And also even communication. So I was, I was mm. also working with some lower level people in the client company mm -hmm. who had 
daily or weekly contacts mm-hmm. with the Chinese counterparts. Mm-hmm. And when you see email contacts like that, you see you can see the uh, people growing apart yeah. during a conversation instead of coming closer. That's a matter of uh, not really training. I never gave real training sessions, but I simply sat with a number of people several times. So I went to the head office uh, several mm-hmm. times. Interesting. Uh, I simply sat with people. So not and only they, with the they let you in? Yeah, this company is a very open okay. company. I would simply sit next to the uh, account manager and say, here, you say this, and your Chinese partner writes an email, and then you write back in, in a way that actually makes the Chinese person believe that you didn't understand, which was probably mm. true. So mm. I gave some hints on what words to use and this type of thing. So it was not about business. It was not about profits. It was not about market shares or anything, because that's other for other people. But because of my actions... Uh, the China business keep, kept growing and growing and growing. So my client, uh, who we finally, after three years, managed to get into the shelves in China, said that for the first two years, they didn't talk to the Chinese distributor about numbers. They were talking about building a new product. They were talking oh, yeah. about changing the product. And that's what took so long, because they were making the product suitable for China market. And he said the m- biggest thing that I learned from his experience working with me was humility, being humble, being present, showing attention, showing your gratitude. And this, in the end, is more important than measuring your efficiency, because it really pays back long term if people know that you have their back. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So you said that you never come to China just for one thing, and now you're being quarantined in Xiamen on the way to Beijing. So what are the things that uh, you're coming to China for this time? It has been a while for obvious reasons. So it's a really, it's a big accumulation of things, but there are also personal. Uh, my wife is Chinese, she's here with me. So there are a lot of, of course, I have a lot of social contacts that need to be maintained for my own private purpose. And yeah, we have the university has some relations. So we'll see when we are there. So the first thing is to get in Beijing and then probably not leaving it because it's uh, you know, traveling from one place between one place and other can be tricky still. It will take a few months and then it will be better. But it cannot wait. So I was simply want to be. Uh, and this time as well, you, you always want to spend some time, some days, you know, simply walking in streets or doing shopping centers. I like that. I like shopping. Or at least uh, walking in shopping centers. Uh, you get, There's a lot to see there. You yeah. Know, eat. So what did you notice? Go to restaurants in the Netherlands have been closed since October. October. Yeah. Some So. And they're still not open. They probably may open sometime in uh, late March or maybe even in uh, April. So it will be nice. So even going to a restaurant will be nice. Simply walk and see and say, hey, I'm hungry. I'm just... What will be the first dish you will order? Dumplings? Dumplings? Well, dumplings. So we eat dumplings at home too. I have dumplings here in this hotel. They're not that bad actually in Xiamen, although it's Xiamen. Of course, dumplings is more northern food. Vitamin if it's hot pots. It's always good for me. Hot pots. I like Winter. it. Winter. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm really liking to meet you because a lot of the thoughts that I had for a while, now suddenly you have them too, and that doesn't make me feel so much of an outsider. So thank you for that. And in particular today, I want to discuss the two of your books and uh, the interest in your blog about the food and beverage industry in China. So the first book you published was uh, Chinese Corporate Identity in 2006. Yes, no, that's correct, yes. But it's, uh, well. It seems quite some time ago, but I was reading it and I found that it's actually really relevant today. So what do you feel yourself and no, how do you think you would write it 
today, if you were writing it today, and what do you think changed in Chinese business world in these 15 years? I obviously, says the author, I, I, I have to agree that it's still valid, uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I can justify it uh, academically because it is such a rather academic approach rather than the traditional corporate entity approach. It's cultures don't change so uh, so, far, so so rapidly as businesses or uh, the superstructure of the world. So I think it is, that's the reason why it, the, the essence is still valid and it will be valid for a very long time. And it is that, especially if you want to know about Chinese organizations, you really have to, you have to start with the social networks of the important decision makers, leaders in that organization. And the organization theory that I employed in that book and in, my, in many, many other of my, my research is very well suited because it's social constructionism and it looks uh, at people, at individual people, as different personalities created in different social groups in which you are a member. So if you are a member, if you are an employee of a company, be it the CEO or a very low or, or, the, or, the, or the, the person who guards the door, right? that's a social group. And that's a social, it's not just a it's social, it's an inclusion. It's called you're included. And inclusion is the membership, but it's also the thinking on which that group is based. So how do we perceive the world in this uh, as employees of this company? Of course, it's company related, uh, technology related, but depending on what type of business. And behavior, we do things in a certain way when you, know, you are a member of a company, an employee of a company. But this particular same person who is an employee of, of, the, of, of company C is very often also a member of a social group called family, a household, in which you have a role again, not employee, but you can be a father, or a husband, or a mother, or a child, a daughter, a son, whatever, that's your, in relation with other members of that group. And each family, as we all know, we all have been raised and born and raised in families, some happily, some less happily, of all different family backgrounds. But we, in our family, there are certain traditions, the way we, do, we, we think, we talk with each other. And again, behavior, the way we do things, the way we react to things. And again, this very same person can also be a member of a volleyball club, you know, as a hobby and weekends, play volleyball. And that's again, that's a group, that's another type of group. If you are just a player, it's your role, and you have social interactions with other players. There are ways of looking at the world as a volleyball player. Uh, the way you do things, uh, that's what there's also behavior. There is some, some sense-making. And you can go on like this, and then you can say, well, that this particular employee of this company is a member of a certain football, uh, volleyball uh, club. It's not really in, in, interesting for business. And then I say, well, maybe not in practice at this particular moment of observation. But suppose that two or three other colleagues happen to be this, also members of the same volleyball club. How big or small is the chance that they will discuss some company-related things during their breaks, trainings, in the weekend trainings, you know, when they have a cup of coffee in their hands and they just chatting. Okay, yes. And then people say, when I talk to this, and then they say, but this makes your research very, very complicated. And it says, yes, because it's, a complex identity is a very complicated issue. But if you are a European company and you want to, you are in this negotiating intensive partnership, like a joint venture or something like that with a Chinese, 
or any part of the world, huh? but we are in China now, we are talking about China business, then it may be useful to know that especially the big decision makers, the people in, the, in, in your counterpart or your potential counterpart, what type of people they are in their company, in several other social inclusions, knowing that especially in Chinese culture, that is even these type of relationships are even more important. And that's what I say, the main development of my theorizing from 2006 to now is adding another model, a cross-cultural model. And that, mm-hmm. that's an, a model that measures culture along seven dimensions. So you can really measure culture and you can, so you can bear two or more cultures uh, by uh, different profiles. So, and as we know, the Chinese culture, this, we call them diffuse social relationships are very important. So relationships, uh, inclusions, you know, you at least you know that there are many viewers may not know, but at least you know I can talk to you with you as inclusions. I will outside, define it at the notes of the episode. Yeah, outside that company are more important to understand the Chinese organization than the European organization because Chinese will make uh, attach more importance to what how people make sense about them when they are in their corporate identity, the personal corporate is outside. And it's not only, of course, Europeans usually, oh yeah, local, we know local government, yes, local government is important, national government, but it can be any type of stakeholder. And sometimes a less important, a seemingly less important stakeholder in a very specific case can be, can make or break your success. Well, so for me, my very first lesson in Chinese, my teacher, he's a Confucius philosopher. He wrote down on the board, So I believe that at the same time, you can be the Jun, you can be the Zi, but you can also be the Chen and you can be the Fu. And actually you need to look for who is the father, who is the son. And it's only then that there is a peace under heaven when everybody's performing their roles in a very clear relationship of subordination or hierarchy. And yes, so in this social structure, it seems like people are always trying to find the crossovers. And so the business yes. example that I have, which I'm very proud of, is the basketball school that is Lithuanian basketball tradition that is being founded here in Shanghai. Yeah. And um, the lady who once brought her son to the basketball class realized that there is an amazing business opportunity and they set up the basketball court in Pudong. And it's one of the most, you know, prestigious districts because there are all of the international schools there. And so all of the kids who come to play soccer, they have very rich and very wealthy, powerful parents who never had a chance to meet And now there is a very beautiful observation deck where people can come and have a coffee while the children are playing. But actually, because you need to convince the parents to pay for the children's education, the convincing part is that you will get to meet other people like you because the price tag is very high. So in that sense, I think in very simple words, we can understand what does it mean and inclusion in China yes, and right. what it means uh, to merge the identities, which yes. are not so clear as in the West, because the Chinese are always trying to take advantage of all the personal relationships in the sense of what role and what, and it's not in, in any way 
negative, but I believe that it is the power of individual here in this structure, yes. which sometimes for the Westerners feels very difficult to understand. Yes. So um, maybe it, it, I just have a question. If you want to comment, please. But then yes, the okay. question will be about the, the CEO who was also the party secretary. Ah, that's Peter's case. Yes, actually, that's from the, my own. Uh, that's yeah. not even. That's even before my consulting practice. It was from the, when I was working at a company because we had pharmaceutical uh, products. Now, this was is, is amazing because I know this man and the uh, nice, gentle person, friendly. You know, well, as always, of course, because I was the foreign potential foreign uh, partner. And then I read that particular piece. Uh, in a Chinese publication about his problems with a subsidiary manager in which he was depicted, you know, as a kind of devilish person, a mean person. So I was intrigued and of course, and then I was already working with this theory. So, okay, here you have two, obviously two persons, one person <laughs> in different inclusions and doing very different things as I knew him personally. And I knew, so I knew the company very well. I started studying the case using the way I do. So with discourse analysis, I started building a, a corpus, as it's called, a database of texts, reports, any, any medium about this company, and then also using some software to arrange them uh, according to inclusions. And that's the way that I could find out that this person is both my, so my vision as a very gentle person and the vision about that CEO as a kind of, as a, as a devil in disguise are both true in the sense that it's in different, different, different identities, in different social identities, in different social inclusions. So basically, do I understand correctly that you had the situation where you were working with this company and they were looking at you as a foreign partner and you were feeling very close to a certain person you felt that this person who is the CEO is actually very nice. He knows how to be nice and local. He came to my mm -hmm. office in Beijing with a gift, a few mm -hmm. liters of peanut oil, locally produced peanut oil. <laughs> and we were talking about the 1980s. Eh? That was in, wow. when I in the 1980s. It was something you give. Uh, it's, in, it's located in Shandong, a relatively small town. Of course, for Dutch, for Dutch measures, still a big town, but for Chinese measures at that time, a small town in Tining. So he looked like you know a rural a rural CEO, mm -hmm. very nice, and uh, so he gave this, this very different impressions. Uh, but instead of saying that that particular that later article this negative rather negative article is wrong, no, it's something that and and, and this helped me build a, a chapter for the book on uh, a case chapter in the book on Chinese corporate identity. So. Yeah. Basically, you faced a conflict. You thought that this person is doing a decent job, and then suddenly there is an article that uh, yes. shines a very different perspective on the same person, right. and that yeah. sparked your curiosity and helped you build right. a certain structure to analyze how both of these truths could coexist at the same time. Yes. And from one thing comes another. So then right. I I did was the text, all the reports, I changed them uh, while well, you've read it, of course, but um, for the viewers, I uh, just want one small yes, example. Yes, please go ahead. I, I arranged those texts according to this is the company in relation to the city. This is the company in relation to the province, one level higher. And this is the company on the national level. That's one of the largest Chinese was, is was part of China's largest uh, producers of antibiotics. And then you so when you do this, and then you start looking at it, and you see that for the for the city, the company is the largest employer, was at right. the time the largest employer. 
for the province, it was the largest generator of foreign currency. So apparently that's more that's important on the provincial level, less important for the on city level. And on national level, it's one of the three largest producers of antibiotics. And the conflict that was the occasion for me to look into this case closer was threatening, or the, the reason why this CEO was behaving so devilish was he was afraid that the negative publication could cost a number of employees their jobs. And then you can explain why the local government, city government on the, on the city level was so eager to help him get rid of this local, uh, this, this subsidiary manager. Because employment is something that is important on the city level, on the, on the, on the rather local level, which doesn't mean that the provincial government or the national government is not interested in employment, but really taking care of the employment is part of the, the, the mayor, it belongs to the mayor and his team. So that's why the CEO could uh, mobilize all kinds of people at city level, whether fair or not, doesn't matter, to suppress this rebellious subsidiary manager. So I think that the people in the West, they assume that there is a united strategy for China in Beijing. And they think that everybody in China is managed by people who have developed this uh, united strategy. But actually, this particular example shows that there is really a conflict of interest on three levels, the nation level, the provincial level, and the city level. And the people have all the power required to make decisions at a certain level. And I think that was the difference that was created by Deng Xiaoping with his opening uh, policies, where people were able to make decisions on their own level. And actually, this method of uh, controlling from the state level existed only in Soviet Union, and that's why Soviet Union failed. And I know this firsthand because that's where I was born. And um, I think one funny story that we say is that when Khrushchev went to the United States, he found uh, corn and um, he made everybody grow corn. But when Deng Xiaoping went to the United States, he found capitalism and this uh, structure (laughs) of uh, federation. And he couldn't... uh, use it in the same way but then he found a different way which is a chinese way through the yeah. roles and relationships and this is also important of course for the political discussions of course we are right. talking about business and politics so you see this a case like this actually is an example that china is that's definitely not this one this monolithic state it's a really complex and there are it's politically just as complex and it's just as diversified as uh, any european nation but it's diversified in a different way and of course our politicians especially now of course with all these anti-china publications by politicians by media in the west it's really it's based on a complete misunderstanding of china because they only look at the super the superficial things and they make they draw the in conclusions from their own mind, yeah. instead of looking you know from the mindset and the culture of people in China, but also in other parts of the world, of course. So what do you think this one example from your book about the pharmaceutical company's CEO who was acting really, it's very difficult to say if he was acting right or wrong, because what I think is the conclusion is that it really depends which perspective you take to judge him on how he was acting. 
I always write, yes, and I always tell students that when you do organization research like this, we don't talk about right and wrong. It's not important. Mm. It's about the differences and the sources of the differences. Mm. But for concrete cases, for Western companies who really want to forge long-term relationship with Chinese companies, is mm-hmm. that you have to make, you have to map these inclusions of your Chinese counterparts or <laughs> practical for us, for your people like you and me, ask a very good, ask a good consultant, you know, to do it for you. Uh, and this is really even more important than the facts and figures of the market because uh, China is so big. When you have decided that it's useful for you to start looking in China, you already know that the market is big enough for whatever you do, whatever your services, whatever your products. And that's not never an issue, China. It's, it's so big. No, it is how to get a good foothold for your business to start and to grow. And this, this, this methodology, mm. uh, as I employed in this particular uh, example, is something that you can employ very well for practical business purposes. I think in my case, in uh, semi-governmental organizations forming joint ventures, it's very important to know what the intentions of the person who initiated the deal is uh, are because sometimes the person wants to perform a significant act that is beneficial to people at some level in order to climb the ladder and so if we help him climb the ladder he will soon be gone and stationed in a provincial level or the national level and we no longer have the support and my project will become irrelevant that's a danger. That's a danger that's always there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what's important is, is what you don't only have to know what your counterpart finds important mm. in life, but also your counterpart's most important inclusions. Today. So sometimes you can please your counterpart by pleasing an important inclusion or a person from an important inclusion outside the company. And that's why you need to know this type of things. So I think to rephrase in more simple business words, what my feeling is that if you want to preserve your business, you need to feed this person who is climbing the ladder what he needs to climb the ladder. But also you need to be very clear in communication with the people in the company so that they would feel a part of this deal and they would also be vouching for you. You have so, to be open. You don't need to, you don't, cannot approach your clients uh, in the China as a big black box. Mm. Let me handle it way. Mm. No, you have to be open and teach. So I always tell students who want to be consultants, a good consultant, good consultants make themselves, make themselves uh, irrelevant. Mm-hmm. But at a certain level, your client will be so wise that they will not know you. <laughs> but because of this wisdom, they know that whenever something happens, they will always need to have you on the side on a low level and so how was this book taken did people read it yes but it's not uh, you know the problem is of course it's it was written in the academic environment for the credits which means you have to have routledge and i, I love routledge and routledge is still one of the best uh, most cooperative publishers for or- for authors i would say because i've had other experience as well but you know when you see the price of your book then you start <laughs> These prices can be very prohibitive, so that, that you know that. But this is also changing. Huh? We are now changing with ebooks, which are cheaper. No, uh, open access is getting more and more popular. 
but I think it was more than 180, it was something like 100, I don't know why 100, but 180 US dollars at the beginning or 70 so much pounds. That's a hefty fee. Well, I think the level of research and the level of commitment of so many years uh, is really worth the money, you know? Yeah, it <laughs> is. Buy something you, cheap. <laughs> yeah, so you look at citations. You look yeah. at citations, that's what we do. But citations or academic literature. So I must say for you, it's, uh, it's inter- the, our contact, interesting part of our contact is that uh, I finally find someone from a business world I did a master's degree in international relations and my business came from being around politicians and diplomats and business people. And I did my research on international economic diplomacy between Lithuania and China. And I was also researching similar things, but I didn't know the theory. If I had read your books in 2011, I think it would have been a very different thesis that I wrote. (laughs) Yeah. That would have been a lot of more fun. Now I was looking for, um, but I also took constructivist perspective, uh, researching the ideas that people hold about being in a position of power and the ideas that people hold between business and politics or yes. diplomacy. Because economic diplomacy allows us to use um, political agenda in business environment and business agenda in political environment. And this is very normal in China, but it was very challenging for people in the West to understand. Yeah, well, it's not only that time now. So just just think about how much business Australia is losing. Well, Uh, Lithuania just uh, announced that they're leaving 17 plus one and setting up in Taiwan. So, you know, I know a little (laughs) bit about it. Yeah, this morning I read that uh, the latest news was so Australia is already losing a lot of business uh, export from wine, timber, uh, barley, uh, things like that. But they're also the latest news. That's today's news is that they are going to lose coal exports to China, and China is going to exp- to import more coal from Russia, which makes more sense because it's closer anyway. But this is all because of this uh, Australian prime minister, who just cannot keep his mouth shut. <laughs> For some reason, and keeps going on. Even after Trump has left, he just keeps going on, hitting China with forever. It, it only leads to financial loss. I think it is loss of face that people really don't yes. want. And uh, I personally noticed that if you find a different way of saying things, they are really interested and ready to listen. And sure. uh, the change has to be very gradual. So... No. I don't know. It's just a very different approach. Yeah. Would you like to say something else about this book about Chinese corporate identity? Because there is one more book I want to discuss. No, well, go to the other book because it's. Yeah. In, uh, I know what it is. So it's just, uh, that's the next, of course. And that's <laughs> uh, six years later. So it's quite a, mm. I think. Yep. So yeah. what inspired the next book, which is Chinese entrepreneurship, a social capital approach? And um, I think that this is by far the most visual way of uh, illustrating Guanxi. And I used, uh, or rather, I stole a picture from your book, uh, the the graph, the illustration that I use on on the visualization for this episode, which I think uh, is kind of a teaser, you know. (laughs) And um, for me personally, it was very difficult to understand, but once I understood it, I realized, wow, I should be using this all the time and I should be visualizing as much as possible for the people to be able to relate to what I'm saying. Yeah. 
So maybe you can tell me a bit more about how this idea came to you and uh, yeah. how did you okay. construct this and what was this research? Okay, well, the graph actually came from a model of social linguistics. So that's how I could mm. my, my linguistics specialization and combine it with organization theory. So when I was working on the first, on the second PhD, mm-hmm. which is also published actually, so it was published before, even before the, the, the book on Chinese corporate identity. Mm. In the Netherlands, when you do a PhD, you have to publish okay. official book. That's a pub, that's yeah. Oh, so so then I was wrong saying that it was your first book. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I was, I was working on a, on, a, on, a, on a model developed by a, a professor of Rotterdam University. And uh, my addition to the model was combining it with a model from social, uh, from so, uh, ling- social linguistics called mental space. And I d- then changed it to cognitive space. And this model uh, by Gilles Fauconnier, he died, I think, last month. Uh, he started using the models with the circles and the lines depicting people, one, one persons in different social inclusions, and then following the lines because the lines are so two social groups are interrelated as long as there is at least one person who is member of both groups. So then say, that circle is yeah. defining the cognitive space, is it? Right, right. And the cognitive space is your perception of a certain environment or a certain understanding a of group. life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a social group of people, a group of people bound by cognitive glue, like being a member, being an employee of a company, being a member of an association, being a part of a family, a member of a group of university friends who go to the bar every Friday evening, something like that. So it's a group social group that is bound by a certain way of thinking about the world uh, and not the entire world but that part of the world that is related to that social group and also including some behavior and uh, so every normal uh, mentally normal person is a member of many of those groups and um, which you can refer to as the repertoire that's a term that i haven't used yet in publications but that's one of the things that you could do and that people use but when you talk to a person when you have interaction with a person for instance in a business relationship you are talking negotiating as a, a representative of your company with a person who is a representative of another company you are part of that of, the, of that so that you are forming a social group around that negotiation so this negotiation itself is becoming a social group if it's just you and that other person, it's a two-person group, but it's still an inclusion. And you are already creating, by your conversation, your social interaction, you're creating some kind of reality about whatever you're discussing. So when, uh, when I was talking about this previously, I said that um, we have to make sure that everybody is on the side of the project, not yes. my side, your side, somebody else's side, but then you need to create this new cognitive space that is called a project. Right. And the example, I think that you, you, you probably read that in, in, uh, in one of the books, right. is the uh, joint venture of HP and Compaq in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that started with a conversation like that in a hotel when the CEOs of both companies were participating in a conference outside their headquarter location so they were in the same hotel in different rooms of course and then they met in the hotel and they haphazardly started talking hey wouldn't it be better for our companies to merge because of the business the business wasn't going so well uh, in general for the companies 
And some time later, they did merge. But then I think the merger star really started. That's a good example because we can pinpoint the actual physical people involved, those two people meeting in a hotel room. And when one of the others first said, hey, why not merge? And then they created the Connector Switch. They created, it was the, already the merging company. So for me, the birth of the merger was that date, that location. And then both people had to create a critical mass in both companies. So I had to get more people into that community space from their other inclusions. So the company started as a, the, the, the merged company started as a very abstract, you know, two people in a, in a hotel room. I think that is something that is very specific to Chinese entrepreneurs. They always have more than one thing going and they never uh, dismiss a good opportunity. And so when there is a collision of two people who have some kind of experience doing business and they swap ideas, and I think the most memorable for me is the explanation of how a Chinese ex-general in the army can actually get to know information from his network and monetize on this information. So it's not a decision that is landed on him by the government, but rather it was his personal entrepreneurial spirit that drove him to take this opportunity because he got to know about it probably drinking baijiu with his old buddies. But then the way it is perceived in the West, it would be very, very different. Yeah, well, we know the best, the best, the best example of course is, is Huawei. Mm. We have Renan Fe, who is an, an ex-military, not not a general, but an ex-military person. And then you have all these politicians and other people believing that it is linked to the army, linked to the government. It's almost funny. It's a very sad thing, actually, but it's almost funny if you see the ignorance and the level of ignorance, and not only the the saddest. I don't know how it is in, in, in your part of the world, but in the Netherlands is that many people who, are, who call themselves Sinologists because they have that diploma are actually repeating. I do. That re- are, repeating, <laughs> are repeating that says, yo, they're linked to the government, they're linked mm-hmm. to the army, you know, because he, was in, uh, he has been an army officer and therefore, you know, and all these things. And says, Come on, you know better. But I think you did a very good job analyzing how a school was created in Beijing and yes. showing that even... The governmental organizations sometimes don't have a unanimous view and you need to understand who you approach in the organization and if that person has the same intention for his area of influence, then probably you will be able to build a project together with that person. And that's the story of how suddenly a woman who didn't have any experience in developing schools became a real estate developer, and then she became the education system developer, and then she became connected to building bus lines, right? And (laughs) things that were required by the government. But also she felt like this is the right thing to do. And she had a radar open for, you know, what do other people need for me? And mm-hmm. it's not simply based on selfishness. Okay, I have some money, so I'll build a, a bus station uh, in, for the government so the government can, can save some money. Uh, but it's also good. It's, no, it's, it's not like that. Uh, it's deeper. And that's think- culture. The book of Chinese entrepreneurship, although I don't use it very deeply. Uh, already, I already started using this cultural model of seven, with using seven dimensions. And it, it will use it more often later. But, so that was already when I started. Uh, another interesting thing 
which is said in the book, but may not be so clear for many readers, is that many of the chapters, the case chapters, have been written by Chinese students. I was teaching in a summer school one, one of those years, and the students had to work in teams doing this analysis. So I think three of those cases, at least three of the cases, have been actually written by students, by Chinese students. So it was uh, the cases of the development of businesses and decision-making of people who were within their university compound, as I understand. Yes, some of them used it. It was a, a shop, a campus shop, owned by someone from Jiangsu, I think. So they, they interviewed that person, how this person come to China. And then, you, of course, you have someone from a, sort of a farm, small farming village from Jiangsu going to Beijing. Uh, what do you do? Of course, for connections. Then you find out you have this whole... Jiangsu infrastructure in Beijing. You have uh, even from people from the same town have their own infrastructure. Uh, sometimes in nowadays in modern times they make a website for uh, they use a website or they build a WeChat group. Of course, there is a restaurant where they often come together, have local food, and they uh, they know, and they know that and you know they have this whole local infrastructure which is uh, which facilitates their business. Okay, so just uh, to go back to the story about the school, because it sounds very, very complicated. So this person has nothing, but then suddenly she needs to find uh, a way to justify the curriculum. She needs to find a way to justify the allowance of use of the land for the purpose of uh, school and other things. So how did this happen? First is the land. There is a piece of land, and the local government, uh, the Beijing district government, uh, yeah, one, uh, one hand want to develop it, the other hand they don't know what to do with it. It's not a, not the more easiest land. Wasn't the easiest land to develop. And she says, "Okay, I'll do it." She had already experience, so she had the money. I have the money. I'll do it for you if you give me sufficient freedom. I'll do it. So of course, I oh yes, please do it. Mm-hmm. But then they build this condominium, you know, with apartment buildings and a road. But that still was rather far away, and then. Not much public transport. Uh, now they have a, their own. Now they have their own uh, subway station, but that's <laughs> but uh, so she built this. Uh, okay, I uh, build some. I'll build bus stations for you, government, or the part of the local government, and you make sure that some of the, some buses will change their lines. So at least we have some bus stops. And of course, that was a nice negotiation. But the more important thing was how to sell your apartments to people when it's so far away. And then says, oh, I, I, in order that I, that's good to attract relatively young families with younger children if I have a, a primary and the middle and the middle school as part of the condominium. It was, it was uh, I think, it was one of the first in, uh, in Beijing and maybe one of the very first in China in this uh, way. But then <laughs> education, as you know, is sensitive. It's about uh, educating young people to become citizens. So it's not something that you can do as a private person simply in China. And instead of so instead of setting up private schools, she simply set up schools as part of the local schooling system. So again, on behalf of the education committee of that uh, district of Beijing, she made schools. But then you need teachers. So instead of hiring, if you have no experience hiring teachers, she that sets up a kind of joint ventures with a primary school and a secondary school, a middle school in town, so to exchange teachers. And then she immediately had good teach, experienced teachers, and she had a school, and the, the children of the new tenants 
could walk a few minutes to school, so didn't need to be brought, you know, Chinese parents like to bring children to school. It's a big relief for the parents, of course, and then it was easy to sell the, uh, these were all firsts. So here we have a person, of course, Chinese, so raised in Chinese culture, but really using Chinese culture to the max. I and I was, lucky, I was lucky to get to this, to get access in the same way to the case through working with a Chinese partner from a Chinese, a Chinese uh, a colleague from a Chinese university who knew this person. So we followed this case for at least three years, I think from 2007 to 2010, we followed this entrepreneur and see how she developed. I think what is highly underestimated by the Westerners is how much the CEO personally has to be involved in talking to people. So one of my friends, he is developing an education technology solution, which is for public schools in China. And he said that 70% of his time is talking to principals and teachers in the school. So, but it is a technology that he's developing. So in the West, the software is bought by clicking a button. And you would assume that this would be done the same way in China, but in China, he had a very amazing, amazing idea. And I saw the very first version of the app or a software, and it could do so many things. But then after talking to the teachers and the principals, he realized that in the situation China is today, they only need 10% of functions in this app because you need people to get used to using it. And that is the priority and not throwing them (laughs) this amazing, perfect solution that doesn't work. So I think uh, what I learned reading that is how much the ability to develop a successful long-term business depends on the ability of the CEO to listen, to ask questions, to be there, and to show personal involvement. I don't know if you would uh, have any comments about this. No, absolutely, of course, and you have to go. That's the, the burden of for, for a European company to be act, really active in China is simply that you have to travel a number of times per year to be there, uh, regardless of the communication. Huh? You know, this, uh, I, I always find this interesting what you see that the, 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 one of the consequences, of course, of the pandemic is that so many people are predicting that we will fly less uh, when everything is over because we have now learned to communicate over distances, uh, and I'm not so sure that that will be happen because you know, the, the world, the, the big change in the world are in the emerging economies. That's why they're called the emerging economies. And these are of similar cultural profiles. And we simply have to continue traveling and business leaders, Western business leaders have to continue to travel and communicate face to face. Otherwise, <laughs> the Chinese subsidiaries will become rogue. And it has happened time and time again when the West uh, cannot control what is happening with their brand and, or with their company in China because they yeah. don't speak Chinese. And because the money keeps coming, they just are scared to touch it. You know? Yeah, it happens on, on, on bigger scales and larger scales, yes. Uh, and even the most interesting anecdote is actually from a very small company. One of, once I had a Belgian company, and this Belgian company uh, was working, had hired me as a consultant, but they were also working with a, a Belgian trader based in Hong Kong. So this Belgian based in Hong Kong had been there for a few years, and he considers himself to be an expert of Chinese culture. But he told me a story that when I met him first, that he uh, two, two years before he had opened an office in Guangzhou. He says it's nice to be in Guangzhou because then you have a 
foot on the ground uh, inside China, in, in the border. So we hired a local boy, a, girl, a young man uh, in the office, uh, you know, nice salary, so a nice office in, in an office building. And in order to show that young man that he trusted him, he said, I visited him as few, few as, as, as less possible, as possible. <laughs> then after half a year, he came to the office uh, without telling the person, just a surprise, surprise. And he found out it was a big mess. There were friends were in the office. He was with his foot, feet on the table and doing anything. And he said, oh, I was so disappointed. And I said, of course, but I'm sure that this boy, this man that you hired was also very disappointed. You showed so little confidence in him that you never contacted him and never, you know, never gave any guidance as the, as the boss. So the position yeah. of the boss, I say, is much more similar to a father in China. Yeah, so paternalistic your... management. Yes, paternalistic management. Yeah, that's a, that's an existing term, of course, that we know. Paternalistic. It's very challenging when my clients used to come and they would see how I run my team. They would be hating me, you know, because <laughs> they would assume that China has changed me into a person of uh, hegemonic powers, you know. Yeah, but, um, yes, 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 yes. But then when they see how the team reacts and how comfortable they are because uh, I do it well in, in a compassionate way. I understand that they need some questions answered and sometimes they need very clear instructions. And because there is a big uh, difference in perceiving the language, sometimes the instructions sound, especially if you talk to them in Chinese, very scary for the West. You know, so <laughs> I think yeah, that's, no, but that's even worse in Beijing, of course. Many, yeah, many yeah. people, the Chinese, they think that people, the Chinese, when they, people from Beijing, when they're talking, yeah. they're angry. Are they fighting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. the way they talk, you talk to people. Yeah. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, these are the impressionist things, but 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 paternalist management is also you know, a lot of a lot of emotional burden. It's not doesn't make it easier. No, uh, fact, it's very difficult leave, for me. I don't. Yeah, make yeah. It easier. No, 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 it's different. It's, it's not just, bad, it's worse, and it's different. In this situation, I ask my clients, I say, did you like the results we achieved? They say, oh my God, yes, it's just I don't like how you do it. Then you don't need to care how I do it because I do it in the way it works. And right. the, the way it works in China, this is the way. If you want to learn it, I will teach you, but otherwise you just leave it to me. You know, yeah. so, sometimes you do what it takes. And in China, right. that is the the way people have achieved so much. They just kept doing things, as you said, instead of thinking. Yes. So I'm I'm still very curious about how you use these visual charts to illustrate the relationships in your consulting practice. Do you feel like the business people understand it? Do you feel it's useful for them? Do you feel it's making them less scared of China and uh, these different social constructs? It's difficult. I use it, of course, for myself. Mm -hmm. But it's not always easy to discuss using charts like that. Uh, even though, as I said, people are not, in companies are now getting more susceptible for academic thinking. This is often one step too abstract. Uh, so you have to be careful. Okay. Uh, but sometimes you meet someone who is interested, then you can, in a, in a, in a more hap uh, informal way, you can talk to them. But it can be translated. So I also so like to teach students to translate this type of uh, 
thinking into concrete procedures. Mm, mm-hmm. Once we were working on a, on a small, I think it's not in the book, no, it's not in the book, a small uh, scale joint venture, and a bakery joint venture in the uh, Beijing suburbs. And then we were talking to the local the district head, of course, you have to talk to the district head for the land and the electricity, blah, blah, blah. And one of the things that we found out during the discussion is what well, we want to find out, wanted to find out, of course, uh, who is in charge of the, uh, who is the direct boss of this uh, district head. So he's the number one in the district, but who is your boss? Yeah. And you don't ask that directly, of course. And two, what is an important measure with which that boss measures that person's success or failure as a district head. And we found out that it was employment, low level employment again, like in the other case in the in the book on corporate identity. So we found out, so then we asked, simply asked, so we won't go, you want this, this joint venture here, it's not a very big scale, uh, so we will not be able to hire that many people, sorry. Uh, but you know, can you give us a number that would please you? And he mentioned the number. Uh, which was about three times that was necessary for that particular design. But at that time, it was an early, uh, an early case. Uh, you know, wages were so low that I mean, why not? So we simply did the company advice to put to some so many people on the on the payroll of the of the uh, plan, and we got everything. The the joint venture plan got approvals almost immediately. Got uh, an approval of a local bank loan. It had all the electricity it needed. An existing factory was forced to move to another location so this particular joint venture would get the, the more advantage advantage location because with this particular project the district had could show off at the Beijing government of course it was the, his boss listen so as you see I have taken care of so much percentage of potential unemployment have surplus labor in my uh, district I can talk about that Drawing the circles, I have done that. I think what this theory really helps us understand is that uh, in China, it's not really corruption how things are done because you cannot bribe anybody in taking this action, but it is your ability to communicate the value that it will bring to that person and to the community yeah. rather than to me. Because in the West, we're so straightforward. Oh, I'm making this much money. I have done this and this. But in China, like the most senior person will be wearing the most simple clothing. And uh, I have done numerous times the mistake of talking to the CEO when actually it was somebody like three people below who would be making the calls. But then the CEO was just uh, there to be handling meetings. Yeah, smiling. Right. (laughs) So then I think that uh, this uh, book can really help people deconstruct the myth of uh, corruption because people are severely punished for corruption. Yes, of course, no corruption. And actually the the solution that I mentioned of hiring more people than needed was Mm. still much, Mm. much cheaper than actually giving a bag of money, which would be bribing and which would be found out soon or later anyway. So you never bribe people, no. So then you would see that there is always, by listening intently and doing the back research, you can find the real motivation of that particular individual. And if you find a way to address that, then you will be successful and they will be remembering you for a very long time. Well, let's say the chance of success is much higher. 
Yeah, okay. What I feel from you is that you have a lot of respect for differences and a lot of re respect for diversity. So I think that is what I'm really trying to share with people I work with as well. And if you come from a place of respect, then suddenly you find that you can listen to that person and find a way to hear what he's trying to say. It's not necessarily you accept it, but sometimes you at least pay attention. And I would have loved to be your student if I knew that uh, there were programs available at the time when I was studying. But um, I think this conversation is coming to a close and uh, I will yes. invite the listeners to participate in some um, activity that Professor Peverelli will create for us in order to win a book if they cannot yes. come and listen to his lectures in uh, <laughs> Netherlands because of uh, situations with the world today. At least maybe they can be exposed to these different ways of thinking by reading his books. So okay. thank you very much for sharing your story. It was very was interesting nice personally and professionally. And now you have reached the end of the episode. Did you like it? I think for me, Peter is one of the very few people who show by his own example how you can integrate the academic studies and the real practice of business. And so we were thinking quite a bit what contest would be deserving of his prize the book that Peter has written, and here's what you will have to do. Please come up with a question for Peter and send it to me, Lena, through LinkedIn or through WeChat before May 1st. The question that is most interesting will be chosen by Peter and answered in the next episode that I will record, and then the person who submitted that question will win the book, which will be shipped to you anywhere in the world. Hope you like the idea and I will be waiting for your questions and thank you for listening. See you soon. Doing business in China is a complex world. You can quickly feel alone and lost in its maze. But don't worry, China Businesscast is here for you. Sign up for our newsletter and regular updates on our website at www.chinabusinesscast.com. Thanks for tuning in.